Did you ever notice how the light kind of comes on when I get up here? You notice that, the, the light? <laughs> light in the midst of darkness, yes. Um, Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, I, I realize there are going to be celebrations all week long. We hope that you join us here tomorrow night at... Uh, at uh, four, 4 o'clock or 5.30 for our Christmas Eve service. I just want to uh, begin by, Lord, we, we thank you for Christmas. It's, we as Christians have a great reason to celebrate. And so thank you that we get to celebrate together this morning. Um, it means a lot to realize that Jesus, you who always existed, you were willing to become flesh and dwell among us for a while. May we understand you well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you want to turn to a passage, we're going to be looking at several passages today, but if you want to turn to a passage, turn to the Philippians chapter 2. We'll get to that eventually. But I, I want to say this morning that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and, and forever. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, I, I love that statement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is what Christmas is all about. Jesus makes a, a, an incredible statement in John chapter 8, verse 58, and he's talking about, uh, you know, Abraham, and he's talking, about, talking to the Jews and about who he is, and he's, he makes this statement, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came into being, I am. In other words, Jesus has always existed. And we're going to see that from several different passages today. But we, we celebrate at Christmas the wonder of the incarnation. The incarnation is when Jesus became flesh. He became incarnate, he, he, the incarnation, when, when Jesus, God's Son, the Lord of all, the, the one who has always existed, became flesh and dwelt among humanity for a period of time. And tomorrow evening, we're going to gather at our Christmas Eve services, 4 o'clock and 5.30, to celebrate the incarnate Son of God, that He was born. We're going to celebrate who He is and that He came to earth to become our Savior. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be look, looking at the post-incarnate. After Jesus went back, was received back into heaven, um, we're going to be looking at... The, the post-incarnate Son of God from, from Hebrews chapter 1. But today we're going to be looking at the pre-incarnate, not the re-incarnate, the pre-incarnate. Who was Jesus before he became flesh? You know, what, what, what was he like? And so we're in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15, 15 through 17, it describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, and he is described there as he is before all things. He's always been around. This is the one who, for our sakes, became flesh. And I, and I just had to throw these verses in, in Romans chapter 10. I, I just find them so, so fascinating. In, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul states, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is such a wonderful message. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved or delivered. But what I want to point out in those verses, in, in, from verses 9 through 15 of Romans chapter 10, the, the, the phrase there, Jesus as Lord. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this, quotes from the Old Testament, from that famous Old Testament prophet, Joel. <laughs> I know his name is on everybody's tongue. Uh, but, but he quotes from the Old Testament, quoting Joel, and in Joel states, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you look up that quote from, from uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, the word Lord is capitalized, which means it's God's Old Testament name. It's God's name revealed in the Old Testament, which is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That's his name. And what it's showing is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's showing that Jesus and Yahweh are equal. Jesus existed in the Old Testament. This is who Jesus has always been. He's always existed. He is eternal. He is God who for our sakes became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you turn to that Philippians chapter 2 passage, in fact, in these verses, look at, look at chapter 2 verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form, the nature of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So in this, in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, in the context of the Christians at Philippi getting all they needed from the Lord so that way they could regard others as more important than themselves, but he uses Christ Jesus as the example of such a life. And it says there, Jesus, who although Jesus has always existed in the form or nature of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And what we need to understand is consider who Jesus already was when he became a man for a while. He's by nature God. He's equal in every way with the Father. And yet for our sakes... He regarded us as more important than himself. For our sakes, this one became a man, a bondservant, to serve us, even dying for us. 
I don't know how, I don't know how God could become a baby, give himself to become a baby born into this world in order to save us. And if you go over to John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When we meditate on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and pretty quick we're going to read verses 9 through 13, we have who Jesus was and what he was doing even before he became flesh. You can go back as far as you want. Jesus is there. He's always existed. He's always been the Word He's always been face to face with the Father. He's always been God. In fact, all things came into being through him. He's always been the light of men. He's always been shining. He's always been the source of life. Always. Even before he became flesh, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. In chapter 1 of John, verses 9 through 13, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Even before he became flesh, he was in the world, the world which he had made. (laughs) He even came to his own, but as a whole they didn't receive him, yet as many as did receive him. He gave them the right to become children children of God, God's child, through Jesus, even to those who believed in his name. And so you look at these verses and you realize he's always been shining. He's always been working. He's always been giving opportunities to know him. And then Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. An angel speaking to Joseph who was considering actually divorcing this one he was engaged to. (laughs) He shows up to Joseph and talks about uh, this child that's coming, and Mary, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which translated means God with us. This one is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I pray for each one of us here today that you have made that choice by faith to believe in Jesus and to call upon his name. If you haven't made that choice, I pray that today is that day. There are many pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament. Don is going to share one from Daniel chapter 3. Kurt is going to share another from Genesis chapter, chapter 32. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great love for us. And we pray that we would, uh, we would be open to uh, your working in our lives. Jesus, thank you that you are eternal that you've always existed, you always will exist. And we thank you that for a period of time you were willing to make the sacrifice to come to this earth, to be born a baby, to become a human being, so that you could be the perfect sacrifice for us as sinners and for our sins. We realize that we cry out with the uh, people that would have been crying out back during the time of, of when Jesus was born. And they were crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Joel mentioned one of the most astounding things about this time when we celebrate when Jesus uh, emptied himself of his outward glory, his visible glory as God, and was uh, born as a man. One of the most astounding things is who he really is. See, we didn't exist before we were conceived. Our life began at our conception. Jesus always is. And not only that, but there are times in the, in the Old Testament prior to his birth, his incarnation, when he appeared and intervened on behalf of those who trusted in him. And uh, Kurt and I are going to uh, touch on just two of them this morning. I'm going to skip a rock across the pond of Daniel chapter 3. You can read it uh, on your own uh, later on. And we see the character of God the Son. He's always been the only Savior, the only Rescuer. He's the one who rescues those who trust in him. And as we've discovered from our study in Romans, all of us, every man, woman, and child who's ever been born except Jesus himself are in need of rescuing because of sin. Sin is a big, big deal. And again, in this one chapter in Daniel, we see a little glimpse of this character of God the Son. And it's a familiar story, but it, it's one that you probably don't associate with Christmas. Um, but here it goes. Uh, it takes place in ancient Babylon, uh, or modern-day Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, he has conquered all the countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And he is the, the, the top dog. And um, Daniel 
and uh, three of his friends had been promoted to one of the highest positions in his administration because Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that troubled him, and God revealed not only the dream to Daniel, but he revealed its meaning. And because of that, he was promoted, along with three of his friends uh, named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we know them better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, one day, Nebuchadnezzar uh, erected this 90-foot-high statue. And uh, he got it into his mind, and he, made, he put it in the, uh, the, the flat area in uh, Babylon so that it could be seen from a long ways off. And he had it overlaid with gold, and all of a sudden he declared, this is, this is a god to be worshipped. And there were many people, not just Jews, there were many people from many nations that Babylon had conquered that were all captive and living in Babylon. And many of them served in his government. And he, he held a party one day. He invited everyone who was anyone in his administration to the dedication of this statue, uh, including these three Jewish Friends and typical of Nebuchadnezzar's subtle, understated ways. You know, he's one of those world rulers who's very subtle, understated. He uh, he hired a big orchestra, or uh, commissioned it, and and uh, he said, "When you hear this orchestra play, you've got to hit the dirt and worship this new god that I've invented." And who knows? It might have even been a statue of himself because Nebuchadnezzar did not lack for self-esteem. And uh, he said, if you don't do it, if you don't fall and worship this, this statue, you will be toast, literally. And there was a furnace nearby, probably set up to melt all that gold to coat the statue. So it was there to carry out, he could carry out his threat. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had lots of people who didn't like them. First of all, they were Jews, captive Jews. Second-class citizens. Second, they were promoted over all these government workers who were G11, 12, 13, whatever, and they were promoted over all of them. And so when they didn't bow, there was a lot of people who were ready to snitch on them and turn them in. And so when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he was furious, and he summoned these three friends before him, and he turned it into a spiritual contest. He drew a line in the sand by saying in verse 15, And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He was about to find out. And you see, the three men had their mind made up. They, they kind of had an inkling that this would happen. And they had already, through prior events, had, had purposed to not compromise in their faith in God to protect their own hides. And so they answered the king respectfully, but boldly, in verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do, not, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. 
Now, the three men recognized that arguing with Nebuchadnezzar right now would be a waste of time. This was a time for action, not words. And they simply trusted the living God that they knew and served and left the results to him. That was a little scary, but they did it anyway. And they identified God, the God that they worshiped and served, as the one who was greater than the fire into which they would be thrown and is greater than Nebuchadnezzar himself. But they trust, they said, God is able to save me, but we also not only trust God, but we trust his decision. We trust his decision about our lives. Even if we perish, we're not going to worship. We're not going to lie. We're not going to live out a lie. Now, each one of us can face a test of our faith out of the blue at any time. Now, while in other places of the world, particularly the Middle East today, uh, it may cost a person their life. We don't live in that kind of situation, but maybe we would face things like ridicule or loss of a friendship or relationship or being passed over for a promotion or even getting a job themselves. Now, these three men, they trusted God that he was going to save them. They knew that he was their savior. And they trusted that he would save them either from death or through death. One of the two. Even if they died, they knew that God would save them and bring them into his presence. Uh, the band Mercy Me has written a song called Even If, and it expresses the same faith of these men. I'll read some of the words. I know you're able, and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Those are words of someone who knows Jesus. And notice, despite their faith, you know, sometimes we get the idea, oh, man, we trust in God. All our problems are going to go away. Look at what happens to these guys. Despite their faith, things get worse really, really quickly. Uh, the king loses it. His face is all just contorted in anger. He, he commands that the uh, furnace be heated seven times beyond its, its normal temperature. He gets his special ops soldiers to tie these guys up and throw them in. And, and as they open the furnace, the heat kills the man who brought Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to the mouth of the furnace. They got the job done, but they died in the process. And there is no greater picture of helplessness them being tied hand and foot and thrown into the fire. But it's exactly then, it's exactly when we are helpless that Jesus rescues us, either from the trial that we're facing or through it. He's there with you. Now, that would be the end of the story, wouldn't it, if it weren't for God's intervention. And Nebuchadnezzar, he looks and he's, it says he's astounded. And that's something for the most powerful man in the world. And, and he said, now, he called his counselors and he said, didn't we just throw three guys in? But look, look, I see four. I see four. Uh, in verse 25, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son 
of the gods. He'd never seen this fourth man before. He was a man, but he was from heaven. He saw Jesus rescuing these three men who had trusted in him. And, and so everybody who had been just on their face bowing down to this false god, now they gathered around to see the miracle of what the true god had done. And Nebuchadnezzar had to step over the bodies of his soldiers and call the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire. And, and they noticed in verse 27, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had even the smell of fire come on them. You can't even light a, 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 a candles on a birthday cake, especially at my age, without singeing yourself. I like to cook smoked meat, and my wife makes me change my clothes afterwards because I perfume the whole house. These guys, it is as if they had never been in the fire. That's the power of God to save us. And that's the character of Jesus, our Savior, demonstrated before he was born that first Christmas. This is why he came. He came to save us from sin and make us right with God as we trust him. And he will either save us from the trial that we face, every trial that we face, he'll either save us from it or he'll be with us through it. Even Nebuchadnezzar, after witnessing this miracle, uh, said that there is no other God who's able to deliver in this way. And the apostle Peter said virtually the same thing after God performed a miracle through him. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. So this Christmas, we want to rejoice in our Savior who came to rescue us from sin. He's always been the only Savior. And if you've never done so, may this be the time when you trust in Jesus to rescue you. We have been, we've been talking about... Uh... Jesus always being who he's been, there's never been a point where Jesus wasn't the same guy we, uh, we worship today, the same God we worship today. And what we've been talk what Don talked about is what theologians, and I'm going to share one as well in Genesis 32, what theologians call a theophany. Uh, theo being Greek for God, and the second half of that word being actually Latin for show. It's actually God showing himself. Um, and we see that he does this a couple of times, many, many different times, um, and one, one, a couple different definitions of theophany. Many times in biblical history, God appeared in human form or revealed himself through elements of nature. Those could be a, where God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Uh, a physical appearance or, or personal manifestation of God to a person or group of people. He could do that. And I like this one the best. An appearance of God in a visible form, temporary, though not necessarily material. Such an appearance is to be contrasted with the incarnation in which there was a permanent union between God and complete manhood. That's the, that when Jesus became man, this was a, it was a merger of the, of the divine and human. Uh, the divine, he, he, didn't, he didn't not become God when he became man, but he united deity with humanity. That's, who Jesus, that's what Jesus did, and that's by which he could save us. But what he does throughout history is Jesus has been revealing himself. And why do we believe these appearances of God in the Old Testament are Jesus? 
Well, Jesus says in John chapter 6, he says, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's saying, I've seen him, but nobody else has. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you, he who believes has eternal life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is making this statement, I'm God. I've seen the Father. I'm here to reveal him and, and deity to you. So if no one's seen the Father at any point in time and the Spirit is spirit, then these appearances are Jesus. We just saw from dawn that, that Jesus shows up in, in Daniel and we see that Jesus is the one who's always been saving people. That's, that's part of his character is he loves us and he cares for us and he desires to save us from, uh, from sin. He desires to save us from the things that would ultimately cause us to be separated from him. And then what I want you to see is the gospel goes deeper than that. The gospel isn't just that Jesus would save you from uh, the, the, your sin, and it isn't just that he would save you from that, but then he would take the next step and he would transform you. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 32 as Jesus deals, uh, interacts with Jacob. Now, if you don't know the story of Jacob, uh, Jacob is a man who the, 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 the Jewish faith goes from Abraham to Isaac, Abraham's son, to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob has a brother, uh, Esau, and Jacob, all of his life, has uh, done a pretty good job of getting uh, great things through not-so-great means. Uh, he's somebody that sort of, you know, manipulates things and tricks people a little bit. Uh, his name literally means heel catcher. He's somebody who's like, oh, come on, let me swipe you out of the way so that I can get what I want. Not, not exactly a great uh, reputation either. But that's what Jacob has done most of his life, and it's caused him to be at odds with people in his life, particularly his brother. And in Genesis 32, we see he's just left his brother, and he's going to go see his brother again, but he's afraid of his brother. He is fearful that Esau is going to do something. And it's in that fear that he has this encounter with God. Verse 24 of Genesis 32 says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him. So you have to picture where Jacob is. He's just left his brother. He's fearful of his brother. And he's going to go see his brother again. But there's this fear about him. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in the middle of the night wrestling with somebody. He doesn't know who. For all he knows, Esau finally got ticked off and is, is coming after him. Or he sent one of his men after him. He doesn't know who he's wrestling with. But he's going to fight back. When he saw the man that was wrestling with Jacob, saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So we see that there's this fight going on, and these two guys are wrestling with each other, and Jacob's fighting, probably knowing Jacob, he was probably fighting dirty, um, that, because that would fit with who he is. Now, maybe he was just getting older and he was fighting tricky. Uh, Cole, who was back here playing, I think that was the base Cole was playing, uh, we were playing some football on Thanksgiving, and uh, in between one of the games, Cole came over and he, he got me in a headlock out of nowhere, and I was like, oh, 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 you know, I'm getting kind of old here, take it easy, take it easy. And he started to take it easy, and then I threw him on the ground. Um, <laughs> And he told me afterwards, he said, I didn't like that. Um, you tricked me. And that's kind of what you could expect from somebody like Jacob. That was my Jacob moment, right? Um, but he's probably fighting in not the greatest way. And then he, it says that he touches, this man touches his hip and it dislocates his hip. And what we see is that this dislocated hip, it would have left Jacob unable to fight back. That's where he had to get with, the, with God. God had to put him in a place where he said, you can't fight back anymore. Now, we would call this a strong-willed individual. I have one of these, probably two of these, three of these, maybe six of these as children. Um, and sometimes that's where we have to get. We have to get to the place 
where we're so strong-willed that God has to put us in a place where we can't fight back. I would recommend responding to him before that, but sometimes that's what it takes. When this happens, Jacob said, uh, let, uh, God says to Jacob, let me go for dawn is breaking. He says, I don't want you to see who I am. But he said to him, I will not let you go unless you bless him. And so there's this twist that happens for Jacob. There's this point where he, he's fighting and he's fighting and he's fighting. And then something happens where he goes, what the heck was that? I can't move anymore. And, and he says, I'm not going to let you go because I'm getting an inkling of who you are. I, need, I want you to bless me. And God says to him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. He makes Jacob verify his current identity. Who are you? I'm the heel catcher. Uh, I'm the guy who fights. I'm the guy who tricks. I'm the guy who wants the right thing but gets it in the wrong way. See, in, 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 for the Hebrew person, their name wasn't just a name. It wasn't like, you know, my name's Kurt. Uh, it, I think it means bold ruler or something. Um, I don't really think that's who I am. But their names, it, it, it attached to their identity. And so he says, who are you? And he says, I'm the heel catcher. I'm the one who fights. That's my reputation. And God makes him verify, that's who you are. Then in verse 28, he said to him, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. And so he says, I'm going to change who you are. I'm going to change you from the heel catcher, the fighter, to Israel. And Israel means God fights. I'm going to change you from the one who's fighting against God to the one who God, who, who God fights for. He moves from fighting with God to clinging to him from a blessing. This is an amazing thing that takes place. He's wrestling and he doesn't know who he's wrestling with. And then all of a sudden he gets touched and the hip gets dislocated. And he realizes that maybe this isn't Esau, one of Esau's men. And he goes from fighting him to clinging to him. No, I won't let you go until you bless me. Now that I have an idea of who I'm dealing with, I won't let you go. And I love what he says then in verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And God replies to him, Jesus replies to him, why is it that you ask me my name? I think this is kind of a funny interaction. It'd be like if you played a game of basketball against Michael Jordan and maybe the lights were a little bit low. And the guy kept making every shot and he kept crossing you over and then he dunked on you repetitively. Um, and, then you, and then you said, who are you? It's like you just got whooped by Michael Jordan, okay? And that's the same thing that, that Jacob is dealing with. He just got put in his place by God. It's kind of a funny question, who are you? He knows who he's dealing with. So he blesses him and he changes his name and he transforms Jacob. Uh, I think he, it's a good thing he did. Can you imagine if the nation of Israel was the nation of Jacob? Who are you people? Oh, we're the heel catchers. It's pretty nice of God to rename him. They're Israel. They're God fights. So verse 30, it says, So Jacob named the place Penel, which is, uh, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. This is, uh, El is Hebrew for God, and uh, Penim is, is God's, it is face. I've seen God's face. And so what do we see here is that, that Jesus shows up. He shows up in the life of Jacob and he transforms him. And he wants to do the same thing for us. He doesn't want to just deal with your sin, though he does need to deal with your sin. He needs to deal with our sin. 
Before we can be transformed, we have to be forgiven. And so this forgiveness takes place. But then immediately following that is God says, I'm going to give you a new name. You're not going to be a a sinner anymore, but I'm going to make you a saint. I'm going to completely change you. And you may not always feel like that's who you are, but that's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to transform you. So Jesus has always been the one who's in the business of transforming people. Some of us have to come to a place where we are completely broken before we will take that transformation. And that's what he has to do with Jacob. He has to put him in a place where he can't fight back anymore. But God wants wants to save us. Jesus wants to save us and he wants to radically transform us bit by bit. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Jesus Christ, I thank you that that is who you are. You are someone that loves me enough not to just save me, but to do the work to radically transform me. And so, God, it's good to want your blessing, and we want your blessing. We want the best thing from you. But uh, we want to go about getting it in the way that you have shown us that we should. And that is through your Son, our Lord Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for who you are how you love us, save us, and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.